I guess we can just start this. Let's do this yeah. thing. Let's have some fun. Let's talk some books. So many, so many, so many damn books. Hello and welcome to So Many Damn Books, the podcast that celebrates reading. I am welcoming Nita Prose into the damn library, Zoom hyperspace. Nita Prose is the author of the Goodreads Choice, a winner, The Maid. She's a longtime editor serving many best-selling authors and their books. She lives in Toronto, Canada, in a house only moderately clean. I love that part of your bio. I'm sure you get asked that all the time. Nita, I'm so excited to be talking to you after a year of a runaway hit. Thanks for yes. coming on. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here uh, because uh, you and I have something in common, and that is so many damn books. So many books. Living and I, the life. I, that's not a complaint, is it? No. no, no. It's wondrous. I I think that it's one of these things that the title of this show is something you can either say in in glory and excitement and <laughs> exaltation, or you can just be saying it in a just, oh no, all my books fell over way. Um, or when you're moving and you're looking at your stacks and just like, ah, do I need these? Should I just leave them all here? I, no. think, I think you're right. That is the hardest part when you move, then you say it in that negative way. And the rest of the time, it's pretty darn great. It is pretty darn great. <laughs> well, I was so inspired by your novel, for the cocktail that I invented. There's alcohol in many different ways wending through the maid. And one thing that I love is that uh, Molly likes Chardonnay. And I am not a Chardonnay drinker myself. Uh, it's not my favorite wine. But I do think it's an interesting flavor, and it was an, it was a flavor profile that I've been hearing about wine syrups people use. I've been seeing it in bars, and I wanted to try my own. And I also remembered that one of my favorite details about Molly is that she loves the tour of Italy in the Olive Garden, which is when you get a bunch of the different little flavors of things, and she, you know, all you take your little culinary tour. So I wanted to make a little flight for her, um, and so I, so I just found a nice. Um, not too buttery Chardonnay. And uh, and then I took part some of that Chardonnay and made a Chardonnay syrup that I mixed with a blackberry syrup that I made, gin and lemon juice. And I shook that up and it turned into this lovely pink color. Um, the actual proportions will all be on the website, So Many Damn Books, and also you can find it on Instagram. And I'm calling it the Tour of Chardonnay <laughs> in honor of... <laughs> The tour of Italy, because I think if I were serving this to Molly, I would give her a little side of the Chardonnay so you can because uh, when it's mixed with gin and sugar and blackberry, you sort of lose the Chardonnay a little bit. But if you take a sip of the wine right beforehand, you find that all those flavors in the cocktail. You you know what? I think Molly would find it delightful. <laughs> I, I would hope. So. Yeah, that's what I would want her to say. <laughs> such a great character i'm so excited to talk to you about her and i'm so glad that she would find this drink delightful i mean i love it i love a sweet um you know pink drink well i'm with you on that i do love a sweet drink but i'm also with you in that i, I don't actually like chardonnay all that much it's not the highest wine on my list that's for sure um but for some reason i decided that molly was gonna love it <laughs> and then well and you were showing me before we started you tried making a uh your own version i did i so appreciate you doing in this life of zoom um i can't serve the cocktails to people anymore um but i'm glad that you you took a shot i did mine turned out a slightly different color than yours because i did i went really heavy on the blackberry i think and mm -hmm. i maybe went a little light on the chardonnay for the reason i just <laughs> told you <laughs> But I assure you, it's nonetheless quite delightful. <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, before we get to the maid and Molly, I wanted to talk to you about one of my favorite parts of the show, discussing the acquiring of books. Um, what did you buy? Have you re uh, bought or received any books? in life recently that you're excited about? I receive books 
all the time. I'm receiving galleys um, like probably once a day at the moment. So I'm inundated with books. Um, and there's one I was reading this last weekend by Lucy Clark called The Hike. Mm. And I think it's coming out um, in 2023. And it's just a blistering thriller about these four, you know, very dysfunctional um, women who decide they're going to go on and hike up a mountain. And some of them know what they're doing and others have no idea and are worried about breaking a nail. Heaven for fence. <laughs> Anyhow, somebody gets murdered on the mountain. Things go very, very wrong, Christopher. Very, very wrong. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I, I love um, when people who don't usually go into the wilderness end up there. That's a that's a fun um, subgenre. I, I agree entirely. I often think about uh, the people around me and who would I would invite on a on a zombie survival team. Okay. You know, yeah. do they have those survival skills that is that are going to help me and my, you know, compadres get us through the zombie apocalypse or do they not? You know? <laughs> I you know Maybe maybe the nihilist is winning over sometimes, but I've been when I see one of these zombie shows or a disease show, I I sometimes think like I hope I go in that first. <laughs> <laughs> they do not look like they're having a good time. You know, I I think based on what you just said, you're not on my zombie survival <laughs> team. <laughs> That's okay. You're up in Canada. We would have a hard time. Uh, I I got a couple of fun things in the mail recently. Um, I got nothing special by Nicole Flattery. And it's a book uh, set in the 1960s about a teenager who gets hired to be Andy Warhol's typist in 1966. Oh my goodness, this is Ooh. good already. That sounds, it's just, and it's like a slim novel. I'm, I'm always fascinated by his, a historical novel that doesn't have to be, you know, 450 pages to yes. kind of get into it, that you can yes. just like evoke all of that so quickly. I, I can't wait to check it out. Um, it's coming very highly recommended. And then I also got Priya Gunn's uh, a new novel, Your Driver is Waiting. And that comes out in February. The last Nothing Special comes out in July. So you can put that really far ahead on your, you can pre-order that. Um, but this Priya Gunn's book comes out um, this month in February. And it's they say it's a gender-flipped reboot of Taxi Driver, which it doesn't mean much to me because I've never seen Taxi Driver. But <laughs> Um, the the details of the plot that I, sounded interesting to me is that she just falls in. She's a rideshare driver, driver who falls in love with one of her fares. And that's well, just that's a great. These are premise. two great premises. Yeah, one after the other. Yeah, I'm so I'm very excited to have added those to the stack to see if I ever actually get to read them. But I I'm excited about getting to them because they seem great. Yeah. But what I know was great. What I absolutely loved was The Maid, your novel. Uh, it totally took me by surprise. And I like to summarize books, but I also know that it is part of your job as an editor to do a lot of packaging and, and selling of books on your own. And, I'm, and I'd like to know about how you sold this book to people with your professional background. Did you, did you immediately know how to sell this as you were talking to people? And can you also tell the listeners what the book's about if they haven't seen it somewhere already which would be a surprise to me <laughs> sure okay well I'll, I'll start by saying what it's about so the book features molly and she is a bit of a socially awkward hotel roommate whose world gets turned upside down when she stumbles across a guest in his bed the only problem is he's dead he's very very dead and unfortunately, very quickly, um, because Molly is is a bit um, challenged when it comes to social cues, she's quickly pegged for his murder. And so she has to learn how to defend herself and come up with a community of people around her who will also help defend her. And I think this is a novel about, you know, what it means to be the same as everyone else and yet entirely different. It, it most definitely is a whodunit. But again, it's a little bit different because the mystery can actually only be solved through a connection to community and to the heart. Mm. So, so that's what it's, it's about. And in terms of, you know, what I brought from my publishing experience um, when I was sort of pitching this book or talking about this book, you know what? 
it is a very different thing to be a writer than to be an editor. When I'm editing uh, and pitching as an editor, I know exactly what I want to say. I feel confident and grounded. You know, I chose, you know, a novelist's book for a reason. And mm -hmm. it's because I understand it and I know how to elevate it and I know how to pitch it. I know how to talk about it. I, you know, but when it comes to my own, it was an entirely different world. And I felt so unsettled by that change in a lot of ways. That being said, I credit my authors with teaching me over the last 20 years, everything I ever needed to know about the craft of narrative. And um, I'm so grateful to have had so many authors allow me into their world building, into their experience, into their stories, um, because that allowed me to craft things, even though I still feel an utter lack of confidence all the time um, that, you know, have impacted some readers. And that is what an author always, always wants to do. Absolutely. That rings so true to me. I mean, and it's incredible to me that you did get like, what an incredible self-made studied MFA, I guess. Oh, yeah. How long was this in a drawer? Um, not very long. You know, I'm one of those writers who became a writer by accident, by the strike of a lightning bolt, a creative lightning bolt. So, um, you know, I was happily editing. I also do ghostwriting of nonfiction. So in that way, I've always done some writing in the background. Um, but I didn't have this grand ambition to like, okay, now I'm going to be a writer. Now I'm going to write a novel. That's not how it happened for me. You know, I was in the London Book Fair in 2019, and this is an event that happens every year in London where editors and agents and uh, publishers go and we discuss upcoming manuscripts and our lists and what we're looking for and all that. And I was staying at a hotel and I went out to a business meeting. I came back, opened the door to my hotel room, and I totally surprised the hotel roommate who was cleaning it. Mm. And I remember her like jumping back into a shadowy corner. And this is the embarrassing part. It doesn't get better with every retelling. No, it does not. Okay. She had in her hands my sweaty, disgusting track pants because I am a pig. I'd <laughs> gone for a run that morning and my rush to go to this meeting, I had taken them off and thrown them in a mess on my bed. And she was making the bed and trying to fold up my clothes neatly and do all of those lovely things that a really good hotel maid does. And so that's what she's holding. And I'm looking at her. I'm embarrassed. She's looking at me. She's embarrassed. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, it is such an intimate and invisible job to be a hotel roommate. You know, she knew so much about me. She knew everything. She'd been cleaning my room for days. Mm. And yet I knew nothing about her, you know? And it was one of those funny little moments that sticks in the back of your brain. And then I didn't think about it for, for a few days, but a few days later on my plane ride home, that's when it, that memory came back to me of that um, hotel roommate. And I suddenly heard a voice in my head. And this was the creative lightning bolt. It was Molly's voice. It wasn't my voice, which is all sloppy and like this. It was clean and crisp and precise. Mm. And I started to write down what I was hearing. And as it turned out, that was the prologue for this book. Oh, wow. People talk about those lightning bolts. Yes. And, and I, I believe in them profoundly and I'm not a woo-woo person. I do believe that ideas have a flow and ebb and a flow. And they, you know, if you listen deeply, one is going to come to you and it's up to you what you do with it. Are you going to let it flow down the river to somebody else or are you going to, you know, harness it and do something with it? So post lightning bolt, the engine of this novel is Molly's social situations. And this is a character who doesn't react to social situations the same way as other people. And so I'm curious about the craft of that. And it could, she could be a cartoon, I guess. And, and I wonder how you tempered that. Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. So, you know, I'm working within a tradition of the classic murder mystery, the Agatha Christie style murder mystery. And in that um, classic style, there are ar archetypes or some would call them cliches, you know, and I embellished upon that. I really stepped forward and into that at the beginning of the novel. Um, I knew that they were archetypes. And the question for me was, can I start with a cliche in these characters? And can I then invest um, and have the reader invest in them to such a degree that by the end of the novel, 
they seem real. They seem like real, true, um, emotional beings who have complex worlds and are no longer just, you know, cardboard cutouts. And that, that was my challenge to see if I could do that. If I could start in one place and end in a very different place by the end of the novel. And in that way, if, especially with Molly, I could move the reader from a sense of not knowing her um, to a sense of living with her as her behind her eyes in her skin. <laughs> there goes my dog. <laughs> and then hopefully by the end of the novel, the reader comes to love her. That really mm. was my goal. Wow. That's a, that's a lofty goal because you know, you, I think that there's some characters that you really like, and that's part of liking them is that they're just a likable character, but to love a character at the end, there's gotta be something more at the base of that. Who are some characters that you love from your reading past? Well, I would say that one character that was so influential to me in my understanding of, of this book and taught me a lot, prepared me in many ways to write this book is Gail Honeyman's Ele Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Mm. That was a really genre busting book. Um, you know, it is in the tradition of uplit, which is what they call it in, in the UK, uplifting literature. Mm -hmm. You know, a uh, literature that is a journey of the spirit that it doesn't start with hope, but is going to end there. It's going to get us there somehow. And, and that is the journey that the reader is set up for. And in that book, Eleanor, the main character, is basically a cactus. She's so utterly unlikable. She's prickly. She's difficult. And, you know, as a reader, I certainly, and I think a lot of readers did, struggled with her at the beginning. But by the end of the novel, you really come to know her, to feel like you've lived and walked a mile in her shoes, and to invest in, in, in a deeper understanding of who she is and how difficult it is to be her. And, you know, that was really inspirational to me, how that author could move the reader so much from one state of being to a different one. And to invest a novel with so much heart and compassion. And so that, that then became my goal with Molly. Mm -hmm. You know, can I transform a cactus into, you know, just a compassionate heart? <laughs> and can I do the same for the reader? Turn them from being prickly at the outset and perhaps frustrated with Molly to coming around to loving her. She's a completely new type of unreliable narrator for me. I love an unreliable narrator. A, a pet theory of mine is that most books have unreliable narrators, even if that's not really what they're known for. Were you thinking, I'm writing an unreliable narrator as, I, as you wrote, Molly? I was playing with that trope too, you know? Um, obviously, as an editor of uh, genre fiction, most definitely of thrillers, um, which is a lot of my bread and butter, um, the unreliable narrator, narrator the unreliable narrator, say that 10 times, um, <laughs> is, is something that has really been at the forefront of thrillers for the last, you know, 15 years or so, maybe since Gone, Gone Girl, maybe a little bit before. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, my question was, you know, how do I create an unreliable narrator and do something a little bit different? And in this case, um, you know, in some ways, Molly is entirely unreliable, but actually in the end, she's more reliable than we could have ever known. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think, you know, there are clues throughout that suggest a few things about who she is, yeah. specifically about her lens of justice, her moral compass, which is so different from most people's. It is unique and um, all her own. Mm. But we often, when we're reading, I think a lot of readers, and certainly I was playing with this, so I, I hope it worked. I don't know, but I hope so. Um, that we 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 start to see there's more complexity to to that, more nuance to her moral compass than we ever realized at the beginning of the book. Oh, I completely agree with that because with someone so prim and proper as Molly and as, you know, wants to be graceful and precise, you think that that, that means that the, the compass would also be as precise and only facing one way. And, 
you know, she proves that to be true, but in a different way than you might think. Um, right. It's so hard to talk about. I want to talk about the, <laughs> the spoiler Spoilers. parts of this book, <laughs> but I won't because I want everybody to listen to us talk about books and not, and not worry. So I'd love to hear about writing a mystery set now, now-ish. Uh, it seems like it, a hallmark of the current genre is to just like set things in the 90s or, or j- even at the beginning of uh, internet times, but it's, it felt like you were really deciding, no, it's, it's basically now. I think everything about this novel is hyper real. I never tell you what time it is. I never tell you what city it is. Mm-hmm. There's so much that I leave. I give you just the barest clues around or contradictory clues, you know, and I let you decide where you think this is happening. Um, so, you know, that that's the sort of floating world that I that I wanted to invest in, where I start and I sort of create an outline of everything. And then you as a reader have to color the rest in. You know, so in terms of time, you're right. There are a few clues that suggest it's now there are cell phones, they get used there, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but in another way, there is a timeless hyper real element to the Regency Grand Hotel and to Molly herself, to her grandmother, um, where, you know, they have a, a universality that might extend beyond another time or actually remind us of times gone past times before. I love this idea of the hyper real. Are you going to stay in the hyper real? Is that where you want to keep writing? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think sometimes what I write, my characters tend to be larger than life. And in that way, hyper real. Um, There's certainly something in me that resists, um, you know, filling in every line, you know, closing every door. I don't, I want to do just enough and then let you as a reader complete everything. And for me, that's part of the fun. I see this, like the 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 reader author relationship truly is a partnership. I start, you finish. Mm-hmm. My book isn't done until it gets read because I can't finish it. That's your job as a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so hyper-reality works well that way because it allows you to bring your experiences, your knowledge, your wisdom to the fore and really complete the picture, whether that's a descriptive picture, a narrative picture, or a character picture, Mm. you know? So I think, you know, in terms of how I see this, in some ways, this novel is more like a Wes Anderson film, say, Mm -hmm. than a police procedural. (laughs) Right. It's Anderson, not necessarily Scorsese. Right, exactly, yeah. That speaks to me <laughs> into my personal aesthetics. So I, so that could be why I, I so found myself um, drawn to the book. The narrative of this book has been, or at least as I've seen it, is that it's being adapted. It's has um, people attached to adapt it. And I'd love to know where you are in that, what you can tell us about what you're doing there. And uh, if if you're involved at all, if you've just been able to give the car to somebody else and say, drive away. <laughs> sure. Um, well, yeah, Universal Pictures has optioned the film. So that's incredibly exciting. And, you know, I certainly um, had consultation on the script and followed along. I am not the screenwriter. Nope. Nope. And I can't say too much about that. Um, but I will say this screenwriting is a very specialized skill and I do not have the experience to tackle that. And I'm really impressed with what's happening on the page and the translation of one world into a different world, one medium to a different medium. And it's so fascinating. And, you know, it's not exactly the same. In fact, in many ways, it's different. But there's a fidelity to what I put out there. And then sort of it grows new tentacles in different ways that I never could have expected. And that for me is so rewarding and exciting Mm. that I could put something out there. And then another creator could come along and make a translation and add new building blocks to create this new thing. That is just the coolest thing. I love it. As you've 
begun reimagining with these people or or reading their imaginings and then having that in your mind how's the fidelity of your original imagining can you still conjure how that all looked and felt when you were just sitting there with molly and it was just you and her i can yeah it's like they those two things exist in two compartments it's like two alternate universes so the universe that i created remains exactly the same and i can call it up i can feel it right now i can remember that feeling of sitting and discovering that character or moving through a scene with her and trying to see as her and yet then I, when I turn and think about the screenplay, it's slightly different world. It's a little bit more comic. Um, it's got deep darkness um, that I think is even darker than the book. There isn't that lightness um, that I always try to balance. Um, and that is, it's a different universe. It's related, but it's different. And that is that to me is profoundly exciting. The two different creators working on the same material with the same characters can derive unique but related works of art. Yeah. Yeah, that is endlessly cool to me as well. I'm one of these people that just wants to see a bunch of different things of the thing I like too. Yeah, I don't, exactly. I don't mind if something is not quite right, it's still interesting. Uh, in, absolutely, and that's why I think book to TV or book to movie is so fascinating. And yeah, we all know those, stories of when things go horrifically wrong one way or the other right? <laughs> where the movie is better or so often the book is better mm -hmm. um but nonetheless we're always there aren't we when that movie comes out you want to see it if you mm -hmm. like the book you want to see it yeah you want to yeah absolutely did you have an actress in mind when you wrote it before anybody got attached you know, not really. The one character that I had always sort of cast in my mind's eye wasn't Molly so much as um, it was the uh, manager of the Regency Grand Hotel where the book is set. And he's a very officious little man. And in my mind, he's Stanley Tucci. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, wouldn't that be great? It would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to return to something that you were saying earlier that your writers that you've worked with as an editor sort of taught you. Was there any sort of specific lessons or things that someone said that resonated while you were writing? You know, I got a lot of good advice from some very experienced writers. And it was more about that psychic battle that every writer um, gets involved in. It was so shocking for me, which really... I feel stupid saying that because I'd witnessed it over and over with my authors so many times, their feelings of vulnerability, their feelings of blindness on completing a draft when they'd say, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I just did. It probably sucks. You know, they're just that constant feeling of, you know, beyond humility of fear of, of not living up to yourself or to your readers. And, you know, I've been in contact with that for years. I've mediated around it for years. And yet, when I became a writer, oh my goodness, it was that <laughs> lesson of knowing something intellectually and actually experiencing the depths of it yourself. Oh mm. boy, I really did feel that difference. Um, you know, sometimes I talk about, you know, that difference between what it what it feels like and what the job is, the difference between being an editor and being a writer. And you know, when I'm an editor, as I said before, I feel confident, like I know what I'm doing. If I'm going to acquire a novel, it's because I know how to help the, the author. But when I started writing, uh, and still now when I write, I, I feel a certain level of trepidation, blindness, um, uncertainty. And for me, I liken that to being you know, in front of a, a a maze, a labyrinth. So the writer, she's standing in front of the labyrinth and her job is to get through that maze and out the other side to the end of the story. And, you know, when you're right there in that maze and you turn left and you don't necessarily see that if you make one more wrong turn, you're going to end at a dead end and your story is going to go nowhere and you could have wasted six months doing all that writing for no good reason. But an editor can stand outside on the ladder, look down, see where you're going and go, oh, honey, don't turn left. There are bees, a dead end monster. Go the other way. Mm. 
mm-hmm. you know, but when I was down in the labyrinth myself, wow, did I ever feel that feeling of vulnerability, that feeling of not being quite sure where I was going. And for me, the solution to that was constantly asking myself questions about why I was doing the things that I was doing hmm. narratively. Could you trust your editor? No. Oh, my editors? Yes. Could I trust myself? Not at all. But <laughs> <laughs> my editors? Yes. When when it came time to be actually professionally edited, were you so pumped to be working with somebody? I really, really was. Um, and I have three editors, in fact. So um, I have a UK editor, a Canadian editor, and an American editor. It's a wonderful trifecta. And what's great about them, I mean, this sort of trifecta or, or multiple editors can go wrong. Oh, yes, it can. But in my case, I was extremely lucky because all of my editors shared the same goals for the book, the same understanding of it, and they all elevated it in different ways. Mm. Um, they focused on different things, and I think that made a much stronger book in the end. Wow. Yeah, that seems like it could definitely go in the realm of too many cooks in the kitchen. That's but... what can happen. <laughs> but, you know, if if everyone is aligned and has the same vision for a book, then it can go well. Um, but, you know, that means everybody has to be really clear on what the intent is and mm-hmm. share, of course, the writer's um, intent for the book as well. So we talk on uh, the uh, over a year since the book has come out and it has become this. So many people have read it. How's how has it been watching this thing come out and be so uh embraced it's just shocking honestly i pinch myself every day um it's so uh heartening to see people respond that way and of course that's what every writer wants um and you know there's also a certain sense of pressure when you're a debut novelist that you know you're gonna have that sophomore book come out at some point (laughs) (laughs) You better get at that. (laughs) Um, So there's that too, that intimidation that all writers who are new go through. And now it's my turn too. Um, But uh, it has been so wonderful to be able to let go of this thing I wrote and for it to belong to everybody else but me. And that Mm -hmm. has been liberating and magical. Have you been surprised at the any specific responses, things that are coming up that you're like, well, how did that come you know, to you? Yeah, for sure. I guess there the number of people, I mean, I get I get notes from people literally every day saying how they identify with Molly. Mm-hmm. She's such um, an unusual character that I didn't think that so many people would see themselves in her. And it's funny because I didn't see myself in her when I was writing this book. I only saw myself in her once I was finished and realized, duh, Nita, like, look again, like, look (laughs) a little closer, you know? Um, Geez, like, uh, I'm a perfectionist in some ways. Yes, I am. I've eaten the same thing for breakfast for, I don't know, 40 something years. (laughs) Um, You know, I need my desk around me to be clean every day. Otherwise, I cannot focus on my work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have also gone through my fair share of frogs who, you know, didn't turn out to be princes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all of these things that I'm talking about are actually universal experiences. And moreover, the feeling of not belonging, you know, of feeling socially awkward in it, in a, in a circumstance of feeling like a misfit of an outcast or feeling invisible. These are all human experiences that every one of us in our multitude of ways can relate to. And that, you know, is is the great gift that my readers have given me, showing me that we are actually all Molly. That's so sweet. It is. No, but it's sweet on behalf of the readers. Like, you showed me that, readers. (laughs) I'm happy to share in this collective with everybody. You brought me a mystery that is also extremely interestingly and complexly put together. It's not really um, a mystery as most people think, even though it de- deals with the most famous mystery writer of all time, um, The Christie Affair by Nina de Gramont. 
what made you bring this book to me? What what made you um, recommend it? This is a novel that if I were a better writer, I would want to write. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I I have so much um, profound, the best kind of envy for this this book. I think it's exquisitely written, uh, deeply imaginative. You know, coming from the angle of the fact, uh, the facts around Agatha Christie and her life, and imaginatively creating a fiction around it that speaks so deeply to um, women's experiences at a certain time in history, mm -hmm. you know? And it's from the point of view of Agatha Christie's husband's mistress. <laughs> and so we get to see Agatha Christie sort of elliptically during those 10 days, and this part is true, this is fact, where she disappeared. The entire world was searching for Agatha Christie because she disappeared. She went somewhere or she died. Nobody knew. It was, you know, is this a hoax? Is she doing this on purpose for publicity? 10 days later, she was discovered and she never wanted to talk about what happened to her in those 10 days. And Nina very gracefully and, and brilliantly evokes those 10 days and a whole, you know, reason behind why she disappeared that is so profound mm -hmm. um, and beautiful. And uh, I love, there's a quote on the back of the edition that I have from Janice Hallett, um, who's of course the best-selling author of many mysteries, three, I think now, including The Appeal. And um, she says this about it. And I thought this was really smart. She says, an inspired tapestry of fact and fiction places the story perfectly in its historical context. The result is a novel that literally out Christie's Agatha. <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> that's some that that's some lovely um, blurbing right there. That's a really nice. Not bad. You get right? that come in. You're just like, oh, that's yeah. gonna look so good. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I I'm fascinated by this time when I heard of this. Agatha Christie disappearance. And I think, you know, it captures a lot of people. There's a, a couple movies, there's a couple other novels that are, that also yes. fictionalize this time. But I think that this one, and, and I think the reason why it's captured so many people is because it is so, well, first of all, it's from the an really unexpected perspective, even though it is, I think, so brilliant to be able to witness her and not have to embody her. Yes, exactly. So she may, remains in some ways a kind of mystery. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I think yeah. that's so important to the enjoyment of this book is that you get to see these little moments of Agatha Christieing, Agatha Christieing around. Uh, <laughs> and they're like the these little morsels that you get to pick up rather than you're just in someone's trying to evoke a mindset that isn't theirs that I think would be extremely hard because we've been walking around Agatha Christie's mind in many novels now for many years, especially if you're picking up this one. Very, very true. I think you, I think you put that really well. Are you an Agatha Christie fan? I feel like you must be. Of course. Absolutely. When did uh, you start reading Agatha Christie? Oh, I was probably about 12. You know, um, it's one of those novels that I would have found in somebody's shelf and thought, oh, yeah, I'll read this. And then suddenly became addicted and wanted to know, uh, are there more? Lo and behold, there were a few. There are a couple more. <laughs> there yeah. were a couple. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, um, you know, I think I've read most of them, if not all. Um, and they've just formed a kind of um, sort of a base understanding for me of what a really good classic mystery can do. Um, something that I deeply admire about her craft is her ability to nail a character in like three words. You know, that's that the economy of language, what she does to create those outlines so quickly and so deftly. So we feel like we know that those ca that cast of suspects there, that is an art form that really cannot be underestimated. She was a master. I think that is so much of her lasting appeal. And also she kept coming up with very cool ways for people to want to kill somebody and, and try to kill them. 
which is a funny thing to be a master at. Uh, it, it is. I, <laughs> it's a I, crazy, wild, weird, imaginative power, isn't it? <laughs> so I love that we got to meet her as it might have been like to be around her. I really felt like um, de Grammont captured that this essence of her, um, which I think was my absolute favorite parts of the novel. Um, there was this sort of I guess because I didn't know what the novel was and I didn't know where it was going. I thought it was going to be maybe like a more straightforward. It is not a straightforward book. There's a lot of jumping no. between timelines. There's yes. a lot of um, story that you're not sure where that's going to fit into the puzzle because there's a, th this doesn't come in like two timelines. There's She's jumping between her adulthood, her childhood, other people's adulthoods and childhoods that I was I was not expecting, so I kept having to sort of reevaluate what I was expecting from the book, which is a fun um, a fun book that to defy your expectations like that. Were you having that? Absolutely, and the sophistication of 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 that pursuit that is a very very high dive, and that's the reason why I think this book is so spectacular. Mm. There's a fun people in the past are just like us sort of vibe to this, like that you know you you sometimes just want your friend's husband or you're just you're just trying to get by and this is the only thing you know what to do um all of that stuff is also very present on the page like there's very they aren't that remote to us it's not that long ago no a plus sessions plus shows <laughs> we haven't really changed all that much and finally you know jealousy envy belonging longing all of those things desire um you know, all of those base human conditions come to the fore um, in very meaningful and sometimes dreadful ways in that book. One of my favorite Agatha Christie facts is that someone um, put all of her books into sort of a, a, a word frequency sort of measure type of thing. And they realized that like, as she got older, she started using a smaller and smaller vocabulary. And like you could actually track her the her brain's uh aging through the course of her books by the her the breadth of her vocabulary. Wow. Which is one of these things that like only someone who wrote many books over the course of their life, like one a year, you would be able to really chart that. But what a weird thing that you can tell from someone's output, you know, that, That's you, that fascinating. you can see the picture of their brain that way. I don't ever want anyone to do that to me. <laughs> Just I'm going to put that out there right now. Don't I'll, do that. Okay. <laughs> if, if I ever have more than a book, please don't do that. <laughs> yeah, don't put me into the machine. No. Just whatever machine it is. No, I don't want to be there. <laughs> How did the book cross your desk? What what did you, are you are you just reading anything that has Agatha Christie involved, or what do you were you reading um, Nina de Gramont books before? Um, no, this was my first, and um, I have this beautiful. There's this gorgeous edition with these sprays, oh sprayed what? edges. Yes, so it's this is a gorgeous foiled edition that just has this Art Deco flair on the front. And so when I was on tour in um, the UK, I went into a bookshop and saw it there. I knew it was already a bestseller, but I hadn't read it yet. And the package was so utterly arresting. I'm like, I must have this. I've heard a lot about this book and I want to read it. But this package is incredible. It is so lush and gorgeous. Um, we need to start so, flocking our pages. The UK does such good, fun decoration. They do. Their... They really understand the book as an object of art still. And they, you know, their production values are incredible. And us book nerds, because let's face it, we know what we are. Yeah. Well, yeah. we go nuts for books that look this beautiful. <laughs> you cannot keep your paws off them. So, of course, I had to buy it. That's so that's great. On tour, just too beautiful not to not to pick up. I would love to hear what else you recommend. What else is on your list of wonderful things that people need to check out? Well, Ashley O'Drain has a book coming out this year. She is the New York Times bestselling author of The Push. 
um, which came out, I think, in 2021. Um, and so the her next book is called The Whispers, and I got an early galley and uh, read it, and it is extraordinary. Um, this is a novel that takes place in a sort of upper-class neighborhood, a set of um, fairly well-to-do neighbors who are all up in each other's business. Um, and as the novel unfolds, there are secrets happening in every single house that have ramifications on every family and repercussions on every family. And, you know, while on the surface of things, that might sound like a familiar trope, what she, again, what she does, like when a writer can just take a trope and then bust it into something else entirely, that just boggles my mind and I have so much respect for them. And um, that is what Ashley has done in this novel. It's a book like her first one that deeply interrogates motherhood. Mm. Um, it interrogates marriages, um, you know, what it's like to have wealth and a kind of eternal emptiness that isn't fulfilled mm -hmm. and what that looks like when that ravages a community. Um, it is a deeply wrought, beautiful um, thriller um, with literary merit as well. And I highly recommend it. Wow. That sounds great. And I'm always, I'm always up for someone who can really like, get into like the pinball system of something that like everything affects everything else and you actually feel that everything is truly like she's there they can track the butterfly's wings exactly exactly and i think it, for anyone who liked the white lotus mm -hmm. you're gonna love the whispers you're just gonna love it love that title yeah yeah your recommendation made me wonder how you cultivate your own reading time now that you're <laughs> You're, you're you're apparent you're hopefully writing another book and you are presumably still editing as well uh how do you still find time for the fun things that are just for you yeah well i am writing another book i'm actually done it so hopefully folks will see that in 2024 um but i'm a voracious reader like crazily voracious and um you know if i'm not reading a book every few days i start to feel antsy like i start to feel like something is missing mm -hmm. i think some people feel that about tv series like if they don't have a good series on the go they feel ah well that's how i feel about a good book i really need a good one to always be taking me through as a sort of escape from reality whatever that means it, you know it can be a very dark novel and or a very literary novel or a very fun novel but I need that avenue um, that takes me out of, you know, this reality and into another. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I read all the time. I mean, it's not unusual for me to read a book every one to two days. That's so great. I, I completely agree. And I know that weird feeling, that sort of unsettled feeling. And sometimes I have a trouble uh, recognizing what's going on. And then I realize, oh, me too. And sometimes I forget there are there have been periods of time where for whatever reason I've put down books for a bit mm -hmm. and I feel itchy suddenly and I'm like what's going on something is missing what am I and then I realize duh you're missing reading mm -hmm. <laughs> go find yourself a book that you're gonna like make sure it's one you're gonna like and pick it up again you know I think yeah. in the pandemic a lot of people experienced that you know that they couldn't read and that they needed a certain kind of book that would bring them back to reading and I think that's that's really important to listen to, yeah. you know, because books give us so much. And, and you know, it's like your body is your your, your body is asking for a certain kind of nutrient and <laughs> your brain is asking for a certain kind of nutrient from a book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's that same thing of like when you just need an apple, you just need to go. Exactly. Get if you have a craving for an apple, have you an apple. Probably go, you should probably go, go get do one. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. When I get that feeling, I always go to a, I go to graphic novels when I haven't been able to read anything. Oh, that's smart. Because so the visuals help you get back in, get right? Get back in and kind yeah. of get that all back. And then I want to read all sorts of books again. Yeah. Uh, but I am going to recommend not any books or uh, graphic novels at all. Uh, I've been striking out on that front recently, but I did and can't stop watching Matilda, the movie musical. Um, I love it so much. I was 
expecting to really love it because I loved the stage show, but I, I didn't expect to have like this weird out of body cathartic experience for basically like the entire two hours of the movie, but that's how it felt. And I think it's partially just loving Matilda the book so much as a kid. Wow. Yes, of course. Uh, and then all the other things on top of that, that it's great songs. And this kid is just unreal, fantastic. And all the kids are. And so your heart is just sort of like beating in your chest for them too. Like, oh, you yes. talented kids. Did uh, it bring you back to childhood? Like, did you feel again that sensation of awe over this character? I think yes, but I I think I also just sensed the tragedy of, yeah. of it more. And I, you know, every book you read as a kid is some mistreated orphan who's gonna make it through somehow uh but as an adult when you think about the systems that have created mistreated orphans and you know so much more about the horrors of the world and then you read or watch or listen to and experience matilda it just takes on a different sort of valence and power and uh and really all of the dancing is fantastic songs are great but it, you know, if you are in a mindset that if if any of this is resonating with you, it could also, you know, cause a true full out of body experience, which I also <laughs> oh, <wow>. recommend. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been able to stop listening to the music, although I listen to the Broadway show, not the Netflix recordings, because you know you have to decide to draw a line somewhere. I guess absolutely. Well, <laughs> now you've convinced me. I'm I'm gonna go check out Matilda. Yeah, I mean, you have to be on board for a bunch of kids singing, and that is not always people's favorite thing. But right. uh, these are great kids and good singing. So great. Yeah. Uh, and I also just 100%, if for some reason you haven't already picked up The Maid and read it and experienced it and met Molly, that is my also recommendation is I just loved your book so much and I thank you for it. It was great to meet her. I hope I get. I'm, if I don't get to meet Molly again in another book, which I can understand if you don't you don't return to her. Well, I've got some good news for you. Is there more Molly? There's more to come. Oh, that is great. Well, then I am so excited to hang out with her some more because she's <laughs> she's really a memorable character that I really did come to love. So mission accomplished. Thank you so much. And uh, to the people out there in listener land, you know what I'm going to say, or maybe you don't. Maybe you're just listening to this one, in which case they're all like this. Uh, go and listen to so many damn books.com. There, uh, there's 196 other episodes you can listen to. I also put all of the books that we ever mention on there. So you can, if you're like, what was that title? You can go and click on that episode and see every book that we mentioned. Um, and I also have a patreon.com slash SMDB. If you want to give me money, I put extra stuff on there. Um, and go buy Nita Prose's book. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. 